Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. We are wrapping up this series called Deep Love. And next week, I'm going to be beginning a new series um, where we will be going through the book of James. And we're going to take a long time going through the book of James. Uh, we'll, we'll start next week, and we may take a couple breaks somewhere in between, but we'll end sometime around Easter or summer, depending on how, um, how, just how it goes. So um, I'm really excited about it. I've been studying James for the last year, getting ready for it. And I, I just, I'm excited to get in and share what God's been showing me. Um, but this series, Deep Love, you know, the, the first couple of weeks we talked about in order to develop healthy relationships and love people deeply, whether it's a spouse or a coworker or a friend or a neighbor or, you know, a child or so, you know, whoever it is, you, you, one, you had to take into account their personality because all personalities are different. And we all have people in our life that their personality and our personality, it creates fire, right? It's not a good, not good fire either, like destructive fire, and how we navigate personalities. And then there was also styles of communication. We all communicate differently. And how we can um, have empathy and understand each other's styles of communication. And even when you don't speak, you're communicating, right? We talked about that. Then Pastor Steve gave a, gave a great message on conflict and how, how we handle conflict. Because the truth of the matter is, if you have relationships, you will have conflict, right? Right? Maybe not this service. The 9 o'clock service, heathens. All kinds of conflict, right? Those of you listening online right now, you there on the back. Um, I know you guys don't have any conflict either. That's because you're online. You don't go to church. But anyways, um, I'm kidding. They're, I'm totally kidding. I love you, Facebook community. I'm just playing with you. I keyed. Okay, so anyways. Well, today we're going to talk about Adaptability. And um, to, to be adaptable. Because how many of you, show of hands, your life has not gone as planned? <laughs> All of us, huh? That's funny. Um, yeah, the, the truth of the matter is, I had a great life planned for me. And th it, it didn't happen. Because here's what happens, is really life is what comes along as you've planned your life. Because your plans, it never goes that way. And the truth of the matter is, is if you belong to God, even the bad things that are off script, that didn't happen the way you planned it, God can take those and, and bring good from them. Even if they were incredibly hurtful or painful, God can still bring some good from that. And it can be redemptive. So, so that, that's a good thing. But life is chaotic. I mean, it, it never goes as plans. Huh, Raider fans? I kid, I kid. I'm a Charger fan. Who am I teasing? <laughs> I'm a Charger fan and a Padre fan. I'm like a consummate loser. So anyways, I'm like the kid brother everyone beats up on. So the, the truth of the matter, though, is in life, things don't go as planned. They never do. And um, I want you to watch a video. This is just a little situation where it seems nothing's going as planned, and you've got to be adaptable in these circumstances. First of all, it would be really cool to see Haley that fat, and how awesome would it be to have a fake little brother who's really my nephew? Haley is not getting pregnant. <clears throat> Just saying if. I know, and I know you like to make trouble for your sister, but it's not going to work this time. You know why? Because your sister's a good girl. I know. I was just like her when I was 
I want you to know, I'm not enjoying this, but this is an important lesson that you're learning, so soak it, keep it. <clears throat> you're too close. It's gonna hurt. It's supposed to hurt. And why are you smiling? I'm, what? Oh, forget it. I can't do this. The point is, you're scared. I think you've learned your lesson. Wow. Ow! Mom? Oh. What are you doing? Hey, I was just um, dropping off some laundry. Is this a bad time? Yeah. Oh, OK. Uh, can you shut the door, please? Actually, we're just going to go ahead and leave that open. Why? Because I have uh, seen this little show before lying on the bed with a tall senior. One minute, you're just friends watching Falcon Crest, and the next, you're lying underneath the air hockey table with your bra in your pocket. Whoa. Mom, you hit my bone. It was an accident. Thought you were my friend. I am your friend. Dad, 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 you have got to talk to Mom. She is, like, completely freaking out and embarrassing me. Well, honey, your mom isn't always as cool about things as I. Oh. What is with this thing? Ow! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a little passive-aggressive, but whatever. Um, yeah, some things don't go as planned. And uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. And I, I want to give you a little background to it. Um, some of you, when he starts, my friend Ron comes out, um, who has a voice like the Heavenly Father, um, you're going to roll your eyes because you're going to be like, it's not even Halloween and you're reading a Christmas passage. We're not talking about Christmas today. We're talking about adaptability. And I want you to think about the relationship that uh, Joseph and Mary had. Because um, life did not go as planned for them either. It didn't go the way they wanted it to go. And they had to be adaptable. So if you would, if you would rise to your feet in honor of God's word, if you're able to. We're going to read from the word of the Lord. It's Matthew chapter 1, um, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So if you look, look at verse 24, it's, it's real clear. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. 
and he took Mary home as his wife. You know that was not how he planned his life out. As a matter of fact, um, there, a, a little uh, extra biblical history for you so you know. Uh, Joseph was from Nazareth. He was a carpenter. That means he was very poor. But here's what we know about Mary. Mary actually was a, from a wealthy family. Her mother was Anne. Um, she was, they were from a priestly family. And uh, Mary's grandmother actually lived in, the na- in a neighboring city called Zephori. Now, um, Zephori was incredibly wealthy. And um, it, it was re- really kind of like the, the Rodeo Drive, the Beverly Hills of Israel at the time. It was where the um, cosmetics trade was at the time. And as a matter of fact, the queen of Egypt frequented there very often. And Mary's grandparents lived there, and they were very wealthy. If you go with me to Israel in uh, 2019, I will take you to Mary's grandmother's house. It's a, pre- it's a pretty cool place. It's been excavated, all that. It's, it's incredibly cool. And you, you can imagine Joseph in the neighboring town. Like, wh- when I grew up, all the people with money lived in Carlsbad, and I lived in Oceanside, where people didn't have money, right? That was kind of how it worked. Well, you had, you know, Zephori, where all the money was, and all the blue-collar workers lived in Oceanside, and we went and worked for all the people in Carlsbad, right? Same thing. So Joseph... Coming into Zephori doing work, somehow ends up meeting Mary. They fall in love. He's this poor carpenter. She comes from this rich family. They actually come from opposing families, priesthoods, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, and, and I can't get into that right now, but here's, here's what I want you to understand. They both had plans for their lives, and they met each other, you know, and he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm marrying into this wealthy family. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be great. You know, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And nothing's going his way. And he decides, because he's a good guy, well, you know, I'm going to quietly divorce her, move along. She cheated on me, you know, but I don't want to trash her in front of everyone. Mary, on the other side, had plans of a family, had plans of this great life. And see, here's what you have to understand. Uh, In America, in the 21st century, we are the people of the second chance. We love Second chances. We forgive people all the time for things. We, um, ha- we love comeback stories, don't we? Those movies about comeback stories, they just get us. Well, in first century, um, that com- there was no such thing as a comeback story from this. She would be an unwed mother her whole life. It would be a rare man that would take her. Uh, maybe for a price if someone pay- paid him to take her. And she, her life was ruined. Joseph's life, his plans shattered. And I want you to think about when they had Jesus on that Christmas night, right? You know, a, a few a week before she's about to give birth, she's nine months pregnant, and Joseph says, hey, um, I, I got good news and I got bad news. Um, the good news is we're going on a trip. The bad news is it's a three-day journey on a donkey, and you're nine months pregnant, and we're going to be going to Bethlehem, and it's going to be well, it's going to be awesome for me, not for you, right? And she's totally freaking out, I'm sure. This is not going as planned. I want to be home. I want to be in a warm place. I want my midwife there. My parents are going to be around. We need to be here. This baby, this is like, I, I can't leave. And he says, sorry, we got to do it, Caesar says. They go, and when you get to Bethlehem, here's the interesting thing. You go to Bethlehem today, there's a church up on the top of um, the mountain, the very tip top of the mountain. And they'll tell you, oh, that's where Jesus was born. And they actually have, you go in the church, and it's kind of creepy, I'm going to be honest with you. And there's like a star in the ground, engraved in the ground. They're like, that's the exact spot Jesus was born. I'm like, you don't know that. 
And people are like crying over it and rubbing their clothes on it and, you know, kissing it. And um, a lot of devotion. And it, frankly, it was creeping me out. You know, and then right next to it, there's another church called the Milk Grotto. And it's a place where supposedly Mary was nursing Jesus and some of her breast milk fell on the ground. And they do the same thing there too. Which I'm just going to say that's creepy. It's weird. It's what religious people do though. So here's the thing. Um... Any archaeologist you talk to will tell you they're quite certain that place up on the hill is not where Jesus was born. As a matter of fact, if you were going to have an inn, would you put it on the very tip top of a mountain where there's no Roman road anywhere near? Or if you owned an inn, wouldn't you want to have it right by the Roman road? What do they teach you in business school? Location, location, location. But that makes a great place for a church, right? So... She's coming, it's a three-day journey, and nothing's going as planned. And I want to talk to you about adaptability, because somehow they make it. Somehow they're adaptable. They yield their plan. And as bad as it seems, as hard as it is, they adapt to God's plan. And it seems foolish, God's plan even. Really, you want me to marry that woman? She's a baby? You're trying to tell me the Holy Spirit got her pregnant? Some of you are like, oh, people were superstitious back then. No, people knew how to get each other pregnant back then, too. I hate to tell you. See, they're adaptable. I want to talk to you first about pitfalls to adaptability. If you have your outline, you can pull it out. Number one, a pit, pitfall, number one pitfall to adaptability. The first one is self-pity. Self-pity. You'll never be adaptable in your relationships if you're always feeling bad for yourself. The perfect example of someone in the Bible who feels bad for themselves is Jonah. Now, Jonah is this guy, and he's a prophet, and God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you, you know, they're doing wicked things, and I want you to tell them that the Lord says to repent, and if they repent, they won't be destroyed, but if they don't repent, they're going to destroy him. And here's the thing, Jonah hates Ninevites. He doesn't like them. They are wicked. And in his heart, he's like, man, I hope God destroys them. You know, it's almost like giant fan going to Dodger Stadium and cheering for the Dodgers to win the Super Bowl. That probably gives you hives just thinking about it if you have the orange and the black on, right? So, and and that, that's, that's what's going on here is this, he, he hates them. And I, and I love it in um, Jonah 3.10. Jonah goes, he does it, and they repent. You know, and you would think like, oh, praise the Lord. It's awesome. Look what it says in Jonah 3.10 and 4.1. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he began to feel bad for himself. See, here, here's the thing with Jonah is he said, why, why aren't you destroying them? Look at all the bad stuff they're doing. And you, you, ever, you ever look at people's lives and you begin to envy their lives and feel bad about your own life? Spend an hour on social media. You will. Has anyone ever gotten off social media and went, man, I feel good about myself right now. No, usually you're like, I need to eat something, buy something, or drink something right now because I feel like I'm a loser. Because here's the deal. On social media, we're all fake. We're all filtered, right? We have things, they call them planteds now. It's a picture, like, you ever see a picture of your friend, like, on Instagram, and they're, like, looking off in the distance, all reflective, like they're smart, and they're like, oh. 
you know, and it looks really good. Or they're sitting at a table talking with their friends, like, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, they took that picture with their phone. That means they were planning that picture. It wasn't candid, it was planned. Hold my phone while we fake we're laughing. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, our food is not as good as it looks like on Facebook. Our lives aren't as good. Our marriages are really not as good. And we're not as happy as we portray ourselves to be. Social media is almost, I mean, it creates this kind of self-pity in us. We start feeling bad for ourselves because we think everyone else's life is great. It's kind of what we tend to do at church, too. We fake it, right? God is so good, isn't he? Praise the Lord. I'm just so full of the love of Jesus. So help me. God, I'll kill you. I'll turn this car around knock your head off. I just love Jesus. Right? See, Job, though, he's kind of the opposite. Job has everything taken from him. Everything is taken from him. His life is devastated. I mean, heck, at one point, his wife is like, your life is so bad, Job. Your life is terrible. Why don't you just curse God and die? Because it's not going to get any better for you. Some of you are writing that verse down. You're going to send it to your husband. Anyways, don't do that. What number is that? So it says here, look what it says in Job 1.20. Look what Job says after he's lost everything. At this, Job got up and he tore his robe. He shaved his head and then he fell on the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the, Lord of the, name, or may the name of the Lord be praised. Or in the old King James Version, blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, I came into this world naked. I had nothing. I'll leave this world naked. I'll have nothing. And he gives and he takes away. And see, the difference between Job and Jonah is many times, and for many of us, is sometimes we say to God, what are you doing to me, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why, why is my life so bad? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? And, and Job was saying, what are you going to do through me? See, the truth of the matter is, even when your life is hard, it doesn't mean God did it to you. It means God is going to pull you through it. And you're going to have a testimony for it. But for many of us, we end up seeing the glass half empty and we say, what are you doing to me? So that's one of the pitfalls, self-pity. Second one is blame. So um, in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about, you know, because you, you've got the, these um, two groups all the time in the Gospels. Right? You have the, the religious group, and they know the Bible very well, and they behave very well, and they don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with people that do, and they praise the Lord, and you know, they don't talk with a weird southern accent like that, they're Hebrew. But anyways, they, they're that group. And then you've got this, this other group that um, they, they know they're messed up. They know they're jacked up. They're sinners. They're, they're far from God. They, they, they don't do all the right things. They've got problems. They've, they've got all that going on. And Jesus is always talking to this group. And, and he, sometimes he's really frustrated with them. He loves them. But, and he, he identifies with them because belief-wise, Jesus was right there with the Pharisees. But, but they, they didn't see it right. And he says to them, he says, why are you so concerned with, the, with the, the speck of dust in their eyes when you have a giant log in your own eye? See, there's a book um, written by, by two social scientists or psychologists, one's from Stanford and one's from University of Michigan, Carol Tavares and um, Elliot Aronson. And they wrote a book. I, did, I didn't read the book. I read an article by them. But um, th they wrote this book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. 
And it's a book on broken relationships, how human relationships break and how, um, how we blame. It's our nature to blame. And these are two um, social scientists that are, that are saying not some people blame, all people blame. It's what we do, right? You know, from the beginning, Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sin. God comes, he goes, what'd you do? And what, Adam, the first thing out of Adam's mouth is, the woman you put me here with, she did it. She made me do it. He blamed God and then her. He was a double blamer. And that's human nature. We do that. And, and you know, they, they, they talk about the vast majority of couples that when they, they, they split, it's not over one tragic thing that happens. Sometimes that, that's the fruit of a long line of little things that have happened over, over time. And um, they drift apart from this pattern of blame and self-justification over and over and over. And it's not just uh, married couples. It can be boyfriend and girlfriend. It, you could do it to your kids. You could do it to your friends. You could do it to your boss. You could do it to your, those that work for you. Is you start saying, well, I know I'm this way, but I'm this way because they do this. And if they would stop doing this. Do, do you see what that is? I know I'm this, but they're this. I know I'm this, but they're this. And we start looking for the bad in, in them. And we're always looking for it. And we're always tearing them down. And what happens is it's this long kind of walk to destruction in a relationship. Is we, we're always blaming, we're looking for what they're not in our life. What they're not doing for us. What they're not to us. And see, the truth of the matter is um, misunderstandings, conflict, uh, you know, personality differences, communication differences, even major fights. Um, those aren't the assassins of love. It's usually blame and self-justification. Why they're, what they're doing is wrong and why my, I'm not as bad. Right? Don't we love to compare ourselves and we find the thing that's not as bad? I've heard people say that before. Like, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like the devil. You know, not like that guy. Think of the worst person you know right now. You feel good about it, right? You're like, man, I'm not that bad. Well, that's like bench pressing more than your grandma. I want you to understand that. Like, that you're still a sinner. That's the truth of the matter. Like, it, it, it doesn't matter. So, so blame is a huge thing. The third thing that kills um, adaptability is resentment, okay? Resentment. See, um, forgiveness, believe it or not, when, when, you, when, you hold, when you don't forgive and you hold on to whatever that person has done to you. And imagine someone's done something to you that's very hurtful, right? And um, if you hold on to it, it's like holding on to a hot coal. If you hold on to it, it'll just continue to burn you. And it'll burn you and it'll burn you and you put it down. You're like, okay, I forgive them. But you know human nature, right? Like, that's fine. I'm over it. I forgive them. I, I'm not going to think about it anymore. Give them. Not really. See, but here's what I want you to understand. When you can forgive and let go of what that person did to you, it's not a gift to them. Sometimes they don't even care, to be honest. It's a gift to you, believe it or not. See, the, the truth, truth of the matter is, if I'm holding on to that resentment, it's just hurting me. 
It's not even hurting the person that did it to me. Nine times out of ten, they forgot they did it. But I'm still holding on to it. And it's hurting me. And see, those who've hurt you in the past, they can't continue to hurt you if you set it down. It won't burn if you set it down. So, so resent, resentment is huge. And I want to talk to you now about, we've talked about the three pitfalls to adaptability. Well, the three things that will bring about more adaptability in your relationships, you'll be more flexible, are almost the polar opposites. And when I say adaptability, let me qualify that real quick. Um, sometimes people think, and, and I see elbows all the time in this service right now even, is you start thinking adaptability. And I am a kind of a freewheeling, like I can turn on a dime, like if someone's like, hey, let, as a matter of fact, yesterday, talk about resentments. So um, yesterday... A couple days before, I got invited to go play golf at Monterey Peninsula Country Club, which is really prestigious and really expensive, and I'll never get a chance to play there. So I did, and I actually found someone else to preach for me on Saturday night service, right? And then, of all people, Dave Love throws me under the bus and tells the Saturday night service, oh, Sean didn't want to preach to you. He's playing golf. I was like, Dave, you're killing me! <laughs> right? So, I'm setting it down. Dave Love. No, I'm kidding. I'm using it as an example. He was in the back row last time. He goes, I'm right here, Sean. So, and I've totally forgot where I was going. So, uh, he, he threw me under the bus. And I didn't want, I was kind of mad. And then I had to kind of let it go. And I said, Dave, you threw me under the bus yesterday. He goes, I had to, man. You're a goober for going golfing. So, So I had to let go. But to become more adaptable, we think sometimes it means that you're not like, that you have to become kind of the freewheeling guy, a person that can turn on a dime or do whatever they want, and you know, and, and you, you don't need structure or plans in your life, and you just need to lighten up. And here's what I want you to understand. Um, I know there's a bunch of you in the room today that are like me, but there's a whole bunch of you in the room today that are probably the polar opposite of me. And you, you like to plan things. And to do something spontaneously isn't the most fun thing ever. And, you know, I remember one time my wife said, man, I got to start, um, I got to hurry up and worry about Christmas. And I got to make some plans for it. And I was like, wait, you just said you have to hurry up to worry. She's like, yeah, I'm planning Christmas. There's a lot to worry about. And I was like, how about you just not worry and plan Christmas, you know, and, or, or just do Christmas? And see, the truth of the matter is God made her that way. And she can be adaptable in her way. And I, need, I can be equally as inflexible, being willy-nilly, doing whatever, whichever way the wind blows. So you, you have to understand that. It doesn't mean becoming adaptable, you're just willing to do whatever. What it means is that you're able to give and take in a relationship. And the way you become more adaptable, number one, is self-awareness. First, you need to know who you are. You need to know what kind of person you are, how you're wired, what your personality is, all of those things. And when you understand that, when you understand not just what you're, wh where you're wired, where you're good, but also where you're weak. Because the truth of the matter is, probably your greatest strength in your life, the things that make you the best person you are, are also, if you rely on them too much, they're your weaknesses too, aren't they? 
they become a giant, a giant weakness in your life. So you need to know those things. You need to be self-aware. And then that makes you uh, more pliable, more adaptable to circumstance in your life because life won't go the way you want. And it's actually the polar opposite of self-pity, right? Self-pity said, life's not going the way I want. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. Look what you did to me because I'm not happy. But if you're self-aware and you know what your feelings are doing, because sometimes don't, how many of you have had your feelings lie to you before? I have this kid, I coach football. I didn't tell this in the other sermon. I coach football and um, elementary level. And there's this kid and you know, in elementary school, they sign up for football, not because they want to play football, but because they get a, like a block R point or whatever school you go to, right? So some of these kids don't want to play football and some of them, their parents are making them play. And this kid, he was a little overweight and he didn't want to play. And I remember the very first day of practice, we're like, okay, go run around the backstop. So he's like a third away to the backstop. He's not even around it yet. And he's like, you know, he's wheezing and he's crying. I go, why are you crying? He goes, I can't breathe. And I go, Adam, you can breathe. You're yelling at me. He goes, I can't. I'm dying. I'm like, you're, you can breathe. And every day I keep telling him, I grab him by the helmet. I go, Adam, your body and your feelings are lying to you. You can breathe and you can make it around the backstop. I'll tell you what, by the end of the season, he'd come around, he made it the whole way, though. He didn't walk. And I go, Adam, what's wrong? He goes, my body's lying to me. My brain is lying to me. <laughs> he was self-aware. Do, do you see what's going on? It still hurt. It still was bad. He still hated it. But he was self-aware, and he was able to push through and finish, right? So number two, another way you become more adaptable is you cultivate gratitude. It's the opposite of blame again, right? You're always cultivating gratitude. One of the practices I've been doing in my life um, for, for a while now is in the, you know, in the morning when I'm having my quiet time with God, I'll close my eyes and I'll just take a deep breath and I'll just think of one or two things that I'm incredibly grateful for and I'll just thank God for it and just sit there and think about them and thank it over and over and over. And sometimes it's the same things over and over and over. For months sometimes it's something. And sometimes I think of different things or I think of different people. And you cultivate gratitude because some of you, some of you are very good at that. You're just naturally gracious people, right? And then there's the rest of us. You know, and some of you are smiling because you're like, yep, that's me. I'm cynical. I kind of think, you know, the worst, you know, I'm always thinking of the bad motives, da, 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 da. I remember this weekend or this week I was um, at a pastor's conference and I was standing in a circle talking to these other pastors and... Um, they were talking about a new Bible translation that came out. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they just translated that one because they didn't want to pay the NIV royalties. Sticking it to the man. And, and, and one of the old guys go, yep, you're a Gen Xer. <laughs> so, well, I'm cynical by nature. That's my sin nature coming out. See, but when I'm operating in the spirit, I, I cultivate gratitude. I begin to find ways to be grateful. I don't see the glass is half empty. See, when you're ungrateful, you see the glass, the water that's in the half-empty glass is, hey, someone stole the other half of my water. But when you're grateful, you see the glass half full because you realize the water you have is a gift from God. You didn't deserve any of it. 
See, if you want to be adaptable, you, you cultivate gratitude. One of the things I do in marriage counseling time and time again is I always have them at the end look each other in the eye and say three things they love about each other, whether it's something they're grateful for about that person. And, and it's attributes. like Because they, they, they always, the men first, they always cheat. Actually, whoever's maddest always cheats, right? They, they, one, they won't look them in the eye. They'll be like, you cook me good food. Bob, look her in the eye and say that. I love you because you cook me good food. Why does she cook you good food, Bob? Tell her why. Because it's your job. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't say that. <laughs> Someone whispered it out here, so I went with it. But anyways, <laughs> and they may say that, but I try and get them to, you cook me good food because you care about me. Yeah. I love you because, you know, and before you know it, this drill, and it, it ends in tears usually, good tears. It doesn't heal everything. They're still a hot mess. But they begin to cultivate gratitude in each other instead of looking for the bad. The third thing is to um, practice forgiveness. See, when you become a gracious person, you naturally start to forgive. Because the truth of the matter is, if you've been forgiven little, you will love little. This is what Jesus actually said. Remember I was talking about that religious group that didn't drink, smoke, or chew around with people that do, and they knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and they had a big Bible just like mine, and they knew it backwards and forth, and they were very religious. He, he, he told them one time, he said, you love little because you've been forgiven little. You don't get it. You don't understand the gospel. And he goes, these people over here, they've been forgiven much and they love much. They have a greater capacity to love because they know just how broken they are, just how sinful they are. And here's what I want you to know. You may be like this group over here. I am, heck, I'm a pastor. I work for God for a living. I'm not allowed to do bad stuff. And here's what happens, though, is you start, you, your capacity for love, because you don't have a lot of grace, you've never experienced tons of grace, you don't understand love as deeply until you realize just actually how broken you are over here. Wives, I'm going to let you in on a little something. Did you know motives are incredibly mixed Right? This isn't wives, this is husbands too. This is humans. Humans, let me let you in on something. How many of you, you've done something nice with mixed motives before? Odds are you've done something nice with mixed motives every time. Ladies, I'm just letting you know, wives, when your husband brings you flowers, there's mixed motives there. <laughs> Kids, talk to your parents. Anyways. <laughs> and here, here's the thing. The reason Jesus was saying that to this religious group is because they were obeying God to get his stuff, to get his blessing. I did this for you. This is Jonah, right? I've, I've been faithful. Now you're going to make me go to the Ninevites? I don't want to go to Nineveh. I've been faithful. I should be able to stay in Oceanside. See, even, here's what I want you to understand, if you're really religious and you go to church a lot and you read the Bible and you do all that, even in all of our good deeds, we're still sinful. We're still trying to get the Father's stuff. And our capacity 
for love is stunted sometimes. But forgiveness is an interesting thing because you have to practice forgiveness. See, forgiveness has to be immediate. It has to be. You have to do it immediately. When someone hurts you, the Bible commands you to forgive, and you should forgive immediately. Here's what I want you to understand. Forgiving, though, is different than trust. The Bible commands you to forgive those that have sinned against you. The Bible does not command you to trust that person. You have to understand that. Trust is something that's earned over time. You, you have to understand that. And if someone has done something hurtful and painful to you for five years running, you need to forgive them instantly and let it, down, let it go because that's for you. But that does not mean you don't have to draw a boundary in your life and trust them. I tell people all the time, in your life, in your relationships, you have a bank of trust. And if you uh, do something to someone, you'll lose a little bit of it. And then you do it again. And then over a year, you do it time and time again. And then time and time again, you do it more. And then you do it more. Now you don't have any. And then you keep doing it. Now you're in the red. You're, you're in the trust deficit. And the mistake we make is maybe we've been doing something for three years or for five years or for 10 years or 20 years to hurt someone. And then God works in us and we have this change in our life. And we stop doing it. And three months later, you're like, I'm a changed person. I stopped doing that. Here's what I want you to understand, though. The person you've been hurting for five years, three months doesn't earn all that back. It might take five years. It might take a while, depending on how much you took. But you have to practice forgiveness. And I practice forgiveness, one, because God's forgiven me. Two, because unforgiveness, I know it makes me miserable. If I hold the hot coal in my hand, it burns, and I'm not who I'm supposed to be. In fact, the medical community tells us about resentment that we carry and how it affects our bodies even. And then the third reason is the reason we forgive is because I know this, I'm going to need more forgiveness in the future. I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to sin against God. And I need the grace. So you know you've experienced grace and you can feel like you've been forgiven. And the fruit of that is this, that you become more forgiving of, of other people. Dave Love, I forgive you, buddy. <laughs> it's true. It, you, when you've experienced God's grace, you begin to reflect it everywhere. If you find yourself right now being cynical, blaming, looking for the worst in, relation, in people and relationships, things like that, the odds are you're not experiencing a lot of forgiveness in your life. You may be afraid to realize that you're sinning. Here's what the Bible says. This is the good news. You know who the most adaptable person on the planet was? It was Jesus. You know, Jesus was fully man and fully God, right? So he didn't have God powers. He didn't be like, hold on. I'm the God now and I can do this. As a matter of fact, he limited himself to a human body. He couldn't tell the future. He didn't know what was going to happen. He wasn't, you know, he, he only knew the plan. And the plan was, I got to go to the cross and die. So he goes into Jerusalem. He's, you know, and actually it's his last night before he's about to be arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus knows the plan. He knows God's plan. He knows he's supposed to die. And he does not want to die. He know, he, that is not on his list. He goes, I know your plan, but I might have a better one. 
And he says in Matthew 26, 39, he says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He was talking about the cup of God's wrath. But then he said, not as I will, but what you want, Lord. What he was doing is he was saying, I'm taking my plans and laying them down. And I'm taking yours. And sometimes God's will for your life doesn't look like the, the safe and comfortable one. But I'll tell you this. Don't miss out on God's plan for your life. His plan for your life is better than any plan you could ever come up with. And the Bible says this, that we were separated from God because of our sin. And our sin is really us doing our own thing, doing our own plan, deciding what's right and wrong ourselves, and going our own way. And God knew this. He said, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us, and he demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God came, and he died for your sins so that you could be reconnected to him, that you could lay down your plan that's not going how you planned it anyways, let's be honest. And you could take up the plan of God, the one who created you, the one who made you with a destiny, but you have to do it. He's given you the ultimate ability to decide whether or not you will. And what will you do today? What will you do? The Bible says this, that but as many as received him, Jesus, to those who called it, believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That today, you could lay down your plan and take up God's. That God could come into your heart and forgive you of your sins. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I'll be there. I'll come in. Today's the day for you. It's time for you to adapt. Your plan, your sin isn't getting you where you want it anyways. Maybe today's the day you lay it down and you take out God's way. And you say, I don't know what it looks like. That's what faith is called. You say, God, I believe you and I believe you have the best for me. Let's pray.